All right, guys, on the podcast today, I have the Dr. Eric Helms making another appearance. Uh, if you guys do not know, Dr. Eric Helms it has his doctorate in uh, strength and conditioning. Um, I believe, please tell me if I'm wrong. Hopefully, I'm not. Bad. No, you nailed it. You're good. Yeah. A real doctor. Cool. Um, we're going to do, uh, he, he actually got his PhD in uh, RPE, uh, kind of, I, I believe, examining the differences between percentage-based training and RPE-based training, um, which is awesome. If anybody does being sort of training, you know, kind of in modern day, it's basically mainstream, which is pretty cool. That was definitely not the case when he was getting his PhD. Um, he also is a podcast co-host with uh, the Omar Esau, atop of the pyramid, looking down at everybody else. Uh, anybody who listens to Iron Culture will understand that reference. Um, and just an all-around good guy. Just if you guys want to learn stuff, go to, go to Eric. Um, Eric's always been somebody that I've heard listened to. And I think a lot of people have learned a lot from him. So, um, yeah, I don't think that's the only thing else too much I have to say about you. I mean, I could, keep, I could honestly keep going on and on. But, you know. Uh, I think that's what people want to hear, Adam, is just okay. my resume. So, yeah, Eric so. and also. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> sweet okay so i just to dive right 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 into things um because we do have a, have a time frame um i wanted to kind of interview eric today going over something a little bit different that i don't think he's been interviewed with in the past and that's going a little more over his um research articles and re reviews in monthly applications in strength sport or mass which is his research review with dr eric truckster mighty zoros um and Garrett greg knuckles and where they basically will look over research that's been done on a specific topic, kind of compile a finding or maybe like one specific study and give some sort of breakdown on what the findings were, what the methods were, um, and then like practical application. Um, but, you know, not everybody is unfortunately subscribed. You guys could though, you know, it's, I think, it's, you know, if you guys are businesses owners too, it's a deductible, so get on that. Um, I also, I kind of wanted to get into um, just a few, few of his articles. The first one um, I really liked, and I just talked to Eric about this, was um, he had a, a research review, review on pre-training meals, basically examining the impact of basically calorie content versus satiety. Um, and this finding was pretty mind-blowing to me and kind of changed my whole paradigm. So I guess I'll let Eric kind of go a little bit into that, from like kind of what he found um, and sort of the, the application for listeners. Yeah, man, I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. And i am be more than happy to talk about the thought process that goes into uh, the article I review for Mass. Thank you for the shout out of it. And yeah, I, it's um, this specific one on pre-training meals. I've written a number of articles on a, a series of studies that have been done by a group led by Naharudin. So Naharudin and colleagues have like thoroughly investigated the effect of pre-training meals on uh, on acute resistance training performance in a specific context, which I think is important to, to remember. Um, and the first study that I saw that came out was in 2019, and they published one in 2020, and then again, another one in 2021, just last year. And it's a really good example of uh, building on an initial research question to fully kind of tease out all the potential variables and using your prior findings to inform future studies. It's just a great example of how to do science, in my opinion. So essentially, uh, the first study by Naharudin, uh, they took a group of habitually breakfast-eating resistance-trained folks, uh, and they brought them into the lab, and they just had them in two different conditions. One, they gave them a carbohydrate-based breakfast, uh, and then two hours later, they did a, a pre-decided resistance training protocol. And then the other condition, uh, they just had water 
and then trained. And this resistance training protocol, it's important to talk about what specifically did they do? Because it's the same thing they did for all three of these studies, which is great because it means you can translate from study to study to study and make really fair comparisons, which is often a challenge in our field where you tend to have a lot of small groups and small studies that you have to extrapolate between. Uh, and they had people doing uh, four sets to failure on the bench press and squat with 70% of 1RM. So these are reasonably high rep training, especially on that first set. You know, you're getting anywhere in the range of like, say, 10 to 20 reps for most people. Uh, and the outcome of interest was basically did one group get more reps than the other? So what is their total, quote unquote, volume capacity? And they did get decent rest between sets and exercises, but it is just two exercises. So the ecological validity or how much this compares to the real world, if you will, is a little bit limited, but it is pretty useful from a, uh, you know, a training perspective. It's still eight hard sets, you know, going to failure on two compound movements. So it's, it's you know, you, you could make arguments pro or con that it is like or not like uh, the type of training that uh, people actually do. I would say it's probably on the slightly lower volume side of it, just because it is only four sets for two exercises, uh, but reasonably high rep sets, compound movements, you know, you decide. So in this first study, they found that indeed the group that ate breakfast got more total reps and, and had a greater volume capacity, if you will, uh, than when they were in the water only condition. And the, the, like the very surface level uh, conclusion is, well, you should probably eat before you train, especially after an overnight fast. That's, you know, especially if you've got, you know, these, these high rep sets you want to do and you care about total volume performed, but there are notable limitations, right? So if you've got habitual breakfast consumers, that means they are, uh, they, they eat breakfast and they train, they're used to that. And they may expect, they may have an expectation bias of that will imp impact performance. So when they go into a water only session, they may be having a, like a nocebo effect, which is the negative side of the placebo effect. They might be expecting to perform worse because they don't feel like they have energy and they're hungry and they might feel lethargic and tired. Uh, and that expectation in and of itself can impact performance, just like the placebo effect can positively impact performance. And, and that's actually what it could have been. It might've been that, you know, if you could remove the negative expectation from water or the positive expectation from having a meal, that there would have been no difference between conditions. So the downside to this is that it wasn't a, uh, like a placebo controlled trial, like you might have with an inert drug compared to an actual drug, like say a pharmaceutical trial. So one thing that we did not know from this study was, you know, is this a psychological effect? Is this a satiety effect? Is this an actual substrate availability effect, like more glucose and glycogen availability from that meal? Uh, or is it a, you know, nocebo effect from the water, et cetera? <coughs> Excuse me. So the follow-up study that they did with that was they actually got real creative and had these folks do a placebo breakfast as a third condition. And uh, this is kind of gross but basically they used this kind of orange slushy sludge uh, and, and mixed it with guar gum. And in one group had artificial sweetener in it and the other group, they had actual uh, maltodextrin added to it. So basically think of like a non-dairy orange yogurt in a bowl that they had to, to, to lap up with a spoon uh, two hours prior to training. And in one of them, it was like three calories just from the fiber. And the other one, it was like 500, 600 calories from a lot of carbohydrate. And then they also had that water only condition. And this time you got some pretty wild findings, both the, uh, the calorie free and the calorie and carb containing uh, orange sludge groups had similar performance to one another, but they both outperformed the group that had water only this time. 
So now this actually starts to narrow the potential explanations for the, what, we've been, what we've been observing. It's probably not a energy substrate related thing. It's not glycogen. It's not glucose availability uh, because we actually had very little uh, glucose or, or, or calories of any type in that sludge uh, condition. So now we've narrowed our potential outcomes to a few things. It could be a psychological effect of having a meal or a negative psychological effect of just having water. It could be a satiety related effect uh, because that was something that was observed that people felt fuller after having that, you know, kind of fiber-based uh, orange sludge, just like they did with having the actual calorie containing version. Um, and I also brought up the possibility that while probably not as this took to place two hours after the training session, there could have been something related to uh, improving mood state uh, through carbohydrate sen sensing mechanisms in the mouth. Uh, you may, or your listeners may have heard of a carbohydrate mouth rinsing. And this is a technique that has been shown to maintain performance in like time trial. So like endurance training, uh, not probably as well as actually being fed, but basically you swish your mouth with say Gatorade and you spit it out without actually drinking it. And there are sensors in the mouth, which tell your body about your energetic state and probably prevent fatigue from coming centrally uh, by just simply having carbohydrates in your mouth, even if you don't consume them. So it's not a substrate effect but it is this kind of central mediated effect to uh, reduce fatigue. So that, that is possible. I'll put that out there. I put that out there in that, in that second review article I wrote, but given that it's two hours after having this meal, I think it's probably not the main reason. So essentially we're down to, okay, is this satiety? Is this just purely a psychological effect? Is it a negative psychological effect of water? Hard to say. Uh, and then, like I said, Naharudin just, just crushing it for science uh, released the, the last study. And this time, they went, okay, well, let's try to eliminate another one of these possibilities. And this time they had, again, uh, different groups being compared. Now they had a group that did that uh, orange slushy mix of, 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 of grossness containing carbohydrate again. So they had the, the crazy yogurt carb pre-workout meal, or they had a liquid carbohydrate meal. Uh, and then they had a water group. Now, the reason why they did that is because they established that a solid meal with fiber in it and, and carbohydrate induced more satiety than a liquid carbohydrate meal, right? So this time they were actually comparing two energy containing drinks. So in both cases, you'd have a similar expectation. You're like, okay, I'm consuming carbohydrates. I'm having a meal and I'm gonna go work out. And the difference in the variables would have been satiety. And this time they actually found that the, the slop outperformed the liquid carbohydrate meal. So now we know for sure out of all the potential effects, it's probably just not the, uh, the nocebo of water. It's probably not the placebo of having just anything. Uh, it is probably the effect of actually achieving satiety. And there is afferent efferent feedback between the GI tract and uh, in, our, in our brain. And it may be that when you are actually hungry, especially after an overnight fast, because that's important caveat, all these studies were done in that condition, that that state of hunger might be sending signals to your body that, hey, you're in a low energetic state and I'm, I'm going to make fatigue accumulate a little earlier, or I'm not going to stave off fatigue quite as quickly. But it does seem that uh, at least for the type of protocol that was studied, again, eight total sets, two exercises. So, you know, moderate to low volume session, if you will, that if you want to try to improve performance or not have a degradation in performance, the primary variable of interest is preventing yourself from being hungry going into that session. 
And that doesn't mean you need to be stuffed or full. That could potentially have a negative effect, but just simply not being uh, overly hungry, if you will. And I thought that was a really interesting finding. Uh, and the final caveat I would put forth is there may be other mechanisms of effect if we start looking at higher volume protocols. We don't know this for sure, but in some uh, yet unpublished data that I'm working on uh, with one of my students on a meta-analysis, and if you just kind of qualitatively assess the overall literature on pre-workout feeding, you can see that there does tend to be a greater effect of pre-workout meals when you're doing higher volume training uh, with a, a greater uh, energetic output, like lower body training compared to upper body training. So it may be perhaps that once you start doing like high volume, high energy output resistance training, it starts to be a little more like the endurance training literature where there is somewhat of a dose response to needing to get actually energy substrates into you, um, especially after an overnight fast. So it's not to say that the only thing that ever matters in all cases to improve uh, resistance training performance is not feeling hungry, but at least for your more moderate to low volume bodybuilding sessions, that probably is the case. I think that's um, all really, really enlightening um, because I know that from my practical experience. So you said one thing about the carbohydrate amount reverencing. Um, usually I know, especially this is something I recommend to, to clients um, because um, for listeners that aren't unaware, I was happy through my master's in athletic training actually before uh, COVID hit. And then I was like, I'm getting out of here. I don't know how long this is going to last, but we would give, um, you know, once I learned about carbohydrate mouth rinsing, especially, um, I started recommending that to my athletes and basically having like some sort of zero calorie like Gatorade, for example, with some salt and, you know, kind of having that during training. And I am really found that that actually did help me out with during those sessions quite a bit. Um, you know, like, even though there's little limited calorie good content, um, uh, and I also did find that, you know, Adam, can I point something out real quick? Yes. So the carbohydrate mouth rinsing literature, this is really interesting. Some of it shows that and the way they do placebo control with this is they will compare a zero calorie carbohydrate mouth rinse, like a Powerade zero, if you will, to a carbohydrate containing mouth rinse, like normal Powerade. And typically the carbohydrate containing one actually beats out the uh, artificially sweetened one. Because the mechanism, which we think based on that, is the actual carbohydrate sensing uh, sensors <laughs> in the mouth. And because the artificial sweetener doesn't set them off, uh, it doesn't seem to have that same effect on the brain. So that, that, that's something interesting as you might find even better results if you did Powerade and spit it out instead of like Powerade Zero, just okay. to put that out there. Cool. Yeah. Well, okay, awesome. Well, I guess that, um, that's a really, okay, cool. So. Well, uh, to disregard what I just said, uh, listen to Dr. Eric Owens. He is the doctor I am not. Um, anyways, um, I think that then like my, my, like what I kind of got from, from that was it probably comes down to like not being distracted from your, from your, your, your training. Um, in terms of like, if you're hungry, you're probably like, like you said, have higher fatigue levels on high, just onset quicker. Um, you might have like a more of a mental negative mental association. Like I know that for myself during training, um, I'm kind of like Lane Norton where I, I like being more full. I seem to actually perform a little bit better with, with that. Um, then if I'm like, kind of feel like light and empty, I could get a little bit more distracted in my own head about things. Um, so I guess the practical Im implications of that would just be, um, obviously energy state does matter. If you're in a de deficit, you're going to probably have a little bit lower blood glucose and, um, a little bit lower glycogen availability. But in terms of pre-training meals, just making sure that overall that you are not hungry is just what matters the most. Um, I guess in terms of like powerlifting, like heavy, like one rep maxes, um, 
since that's a little more dependent upon glucose, um, do you think that it would that be any difference if they were like be testing like say like one rep maxes as opposed to volume? Actually, if you look at the data on maximal expressions of power or force, this is where the carbohydrate. So basically, if you look at the carbohydrate literature, it's pretty messy and it's difficult to really kind of qualitatively assess it because one, it is a bunch of different types of protocols. You've got you know, total work on an isokinetic dynamometer, you have uh, total reps on this exercise, total reps on that exercise. You have uh, a measure of force like jump height, where you have a, a measure of one RM strength, or you have the most reps you can do at 80% of one RM versus like the 70% in Naharudin studies. And you see a mixed back. And then generally when it comes to quote unquote volume performance, you do see that longer overnight fasts, higher volumes and lower body training is where you more often see a positive effect, but not always of a uh, pre-training feeding, but where you almost never see a positive effect is one-off expressions of force or power. Um, and this is actually a really consistent finding in other lines of research, like the overtraining research, the, the type of human performance that seems to be maintained through acute sleep loss, uh, excessive training volume, um, acute energy deficit, like not having a pre-training meal, is one-off expressions of, of force, which makes sense from a survival perspective. If you know we're primarily not an animal that was predated, you know, eaten by others, but do need to make sure we can we can get the heaters on and get up a tree real quick. If if something does try to eat us, we're going to need those quick expressions of force and power. So they those tend to be the most robust uh, type of performances. But if you want to do you know ten more reps, then may, maybe not quite so much if you're if you're totally depleted. Interesting. Okay, cool. So a little bit more important for um, those hypertrophy and volume-based sessions. So I guess if you were to give a practical recommendation for pre-training meals, um, would it be basically be pretty accurate just to say, you know, make sure it has like enough, like, I guess like, so like, it's just, I know that the typical recommendation for like carbohydrate is like one gram per like kilo for like, so I say you're having like an, an hour before training, like one gram per kilogram of body weight is about what, that's what I remember from my sports uh, nutrition course in school. I, I think it's career. totally reasonable. Yeah, that, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think I think there is some things to remember, like um, because of that effect of the longer time period of an overnight fast or of any fast prior to the session making a difference. Um, sometimes you don't actually need a quote unquote pre-training meal. Like let's say you work out at 2 p.m. and uh, you, you have lunch at 12 and you had breakfast at 8 like, do you, do you need to do anything? Probably not. Like all the Naharudin studies, which, you know, that are two hours after the, the, the sludge or shake or meal they had, um, you know, they, they showed a, a difference to having nothing. Um, and they're in the, that first meal. It's been at least, you know, eight to 10 hours since they've eaten anything. But you already had breakfast even, you know, four hours prior to that. In addition to, you know, sorry, six, well, I don't know. You've had two meals, damn it. Uh, is, is what I'm saying. I can't do math. But uh, so I think that's important to remember is that, when you're in a, when you're not fasted for as long of a time period, um, and when you know you're you're kind of in the middle of your day with multiple meals, it probably doesn't make quite as much of a difference. But if you are going to go into a session or you haven't eaten for a minute, you probably just want something. And I think one gram per kg of carbohydrate is a very reasonable, uh, you know, estimation of how much that should be. That's basically, you know, roughly half your body weight in pounds minus ten percent of that for, uh, for if, if you, if you, if you don't metric, 
and in carbohydrate with a little bit of protein, a little bit of fat, and that should make sure that it's reasonably satiating. And I only thing I would say is probably don't just go pure liquid um, because of that recent finding by Maharudin, just to make sure you actually do feel a little bit of satiety. Um, but I would also modulate that to the individual. And if you feel heavy or stuffed, uh, or if that can have a negative impact, because I've seen enough anecdotes that have come from the intermittent fasting community where they've followed like quote unquote traditional pre-workout meals. And they found that when they went fasted, it improved. And often in my coaching experience is something in between those two extremes is actually better for performance um, that they were just kind of overdoing it initially. And it actually had a negative effect compared to the, the, uh, to, to not doing it. So uh, I would say that's a great starting recommendation, Adam, and just make sure that the individual modulates it based on how it actually plays out in the real world. Awesome. So actually coach when you're coaching. That's a uh, great idea. <laughs> so now I wanted to go into um, another topic, which is basically periodizing singles and powerlifting training. Um, I know that lots of coaches in rally, I know that Joy Flex especially uh, is one of the more, more prominent powerlifting coaches that does singles year round. Um, I know there are lots of, like we saw, talked about in the last podcast, there are lots of roads to getting stronger. Um, I'm currently coached by Eric Bodhorn of the Strength Athlete. Um, and my, for my training approach, we have found that for myself, you know, I don't really do singles year round. Usually it's only going into my, into my meat. Um, I know that Eric, you know, obviously has different approaches for most people, but I've talked to him about it. He doesn't do it as often. Um, but I know that you and like Mike to Mike to cheer lots of like the reactive training systems guys love like their one at eights. Um, so I wanted to kind of ask you about how to periodize singles in powerlifting training, because I think that there is probably... Um, I know that you was, I was listening to the data driven strength podcast yesterday with you on it, just because I wanted to, you know, kind of get a little bit of background on this kind of like know a little bit about like your approach to training, like a little bit of your own training theory, because I think that every single coach should have somewhat of their own training approach and theory and the way they come to detecting that signal versus noise rate ratio. And I know that one of the things that you said, um, and I guess I'm kind of wanted to use this to start off things was, you believe that there is kind of a somewhat of a cap on how long that you can actually use that stimulus. And I know we did address this a little bit in the last podcast, but I kind of wanted to give maybe a little bit of a deeper dive into the utility of um, singles and probably how you would basically come to, I guess, determining whether or not an athlete responds best in terms of strength progression to low, let's say that's 60 to 75% of one rubber max uh, intensity, moderate 75 to 85% versus high 85 to 100% intensity. Um, so I guess I will let you keep, take the road and start off with um, your thought process behind periodizing singles. Yeah. So I, I even, you know, like the singles at eight is kind of a, the, the meme version of, of what the RTS guys uh, and gals have done. But, you know, for me, I have even liked, you know, singles at fives and sixes and sevens um, early in earlier phases, or even sometimes between those heavier singles as just a way to get productive practice that's non-fatiguing. Um, and they have a really nice side effect of being able to give you some deliberate practice. That's not a side effect. That's their main purpose. But the side effect of, of you having a decent idea of kind of where your strength is at at any given time. So this can be a variable that tells you about your strength recovery within week. So within microcycle, and also as a measure of progress over time. And I think an important thing, like you said, it's important for coaches to have their own kind of philosophy behind their training. 
Um, I don't think you need to have that just because you need to be your own coach and have your own ideas, but it's nothing moral like that. But rather it's that anytime we take theories and we go into application, there is not going to be one application. So you need to have some type of system uh, that makes sense to you. And that means you are also therefore forced to have some type of paradigm of thinking about it and what it means. So for me, um, the way I like to operate is I will have what I think Mike T would call like, like benchmark performances. And those can change. And I also have expectations about what I should see in them at different phases. And I know that it's not realistic after a certain point for there just to be a linear increase in estimated 1RM in the powerlifters I work with, because that's just not the way things happen. You know, there, there are dead periods, plateaus. There are expected periods of regression after a big meet before then we pick up. And so long as the next peak is higher than the last peak and this valley isn't as low as the last valley, we're in good shape. But how do I know what the, where those peaks and valleys are? And those are primarily the singles. But that's not to say that I couldn't use a triple at a seven as a benchmark as well. And there may be benefits to that if we find that someone uh, seems to respond better to a little bit you know, more volume in a set, more attempts and opportunities to correct what came before. Um, you know, the, the, you, you, could, you could create a narrative around why that might be better, but nonetheless, you might just find it is better or just lowering the load a little bit. So for example, um, I'm working with Jessica Bittner at the moment and we do like singles uh, on the, uh, the bench and squat, but if we do them too frequently on the deadlift, especially at even a, a moderately high RPE, it tends to give her issues and it, and it seems to create stagnation. I don't know why. Um, and to some degree, it doesn't really matter. But um, that is definitely data that we incorporate and make different decisions about moving forward. <coughs> Excuse me. So, uh, and, and for example, with Bryce, it's another lifter that people might be aware of who I work with, who's part of TSA, you know, Eric Bothorn and co. Um, we typically don't do singles um, except for maybe one day and one week out of, meso out of mesocycles that are farther from comps. When we get close to comp, they become something that we're doing one to two times a week per lift. Um, and then a lot in that final week or final two weeks. <coughs> so follow this much more of a, like a traditional periodization approach. And I think um, Bryce tends to do better at, with more submaximal sets. They build confidence. They give him an opportunity to uh, spend more of his awareness on how his body is moving versus just trying really hard. Um, and uh, it helps him seem to quote unquote, generate momentum for whatever that means, you know, starting low and then building up, he tends to hit higher peaks. than if we kind of start just, you know, 90% of where we think we can get to and try to get there, he tends to plateau. more. So again, that in both cases, there is a periodization of singles, but they look quite different, you know, for those two athletes, they're almost always there, but only for two lifts for Jessica. And then they are <laughs> just at the end of periodization cycles um, or just occasionally at lower loads, like singles at, you know, a five RPE for Bryce, for example, on a quote unquote power day, but then they become a dominant thing we do before uh, our back off work, maybe one to two days a week as we get into the final, you know, six weeks prior to a comp for Bryce. And then for myself, also being a world champion, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> for myself being a mediocre 93 kilo lifter in the mid 600 totals, range. Uh, I find that I get a lot of benefit out of having them pretty far out um, because I, I find that my, my technique and my progress improvements become much more linear when I do them. And I do kind of start with periodizing singles at say like 
for four weeks, I'm going to do singles between a five to seven. For four weeks, I'm going to do them at a six to eight. For four weeks, I'll do them at a seven to nine. And then my peaking block, they'll be at an eight to 10. Uh, and then concurrently with that, I will be doing more total volume on accessory movements and less specific accessory work, meaning variations on the main lifts, but more bodybuilding work. And then that ratio gets shifted so that I'm doing more and more specific variations and eventually pretty much just doing the main lifts and the singles with back offs on the competition lifts in competition format for like doubles and triples uh, and submaximal loads in the final couple blocks. So that is like the way I use it for me. And I'm probably the most stock standard, obvious, you know, kind of singles approach out of all the athletes I have. Yeah. So I, I'm aware that that is a bias of mine because it seems to work well for me. Um, and uh, so the, the interesting thing there is that even though that is kind of where I would start, I definitely follow performance, but ironically, without those singles to tell me that it's not working, it's difficult to then take them out, you know? So for, for Jessica, she had training data before I started working with her. And then we started with a much more bodybuilding centric approach. And then we were like, all right, COVID's getting to the point where we can actually do some powerlifting meets. Let's get into powerlifting. I use kind of that same semi-frequent singles approach that, that I would program for myself. And she started the plateau on a deadlift when she was actually making deadlift progress, even during a bodybuilding phase previously. And we went, Hmm. And we pulled it out. We tried to bring it back in. We tried triples. And now we have it like maybe just at the end of the block. Uh, so it is a constant tweaking process. Um, so, but we wouldn't have known that without actually having the single there in the first place. So I think that's the primary value of these is that if you do a single, even at a five RPE, that is a like six RM load, right? That you're loading. That's not light. You know, that's like 85, 86% of one RM that you're doing for a single. You have to get your shit together, do your proper workout, make sure the bar's in the right spot, take a breath. Uh, and the bar speed will not be super fast. It'll be fast for powerlifting, but it'll, it'll look like, you know, maybe your, your last warm up before you hit the platform, maybe slightly lighter than that. And you know how you feel when you do that at a meet, like it's, it's, it, it's go time, you know, like your, your belt's on, right? Um, so I think that is still quite useful and I am reasonably confident getting an estimated one RM from that. I'm not going to use that in the meat, you know, like when a single at a five RPE, uh, but it will absolutely inform me as to how is this block going? And then here's the last piece of it. What am I expecting in a block where I'm doing infrequent singles at a five or a six RPE, um, or 85, 86% of one RM, you don't have to use RPE. I'm not expecting uh, one RM to go up because we're not doing a lot of specific practice. I am hoping that this is acting to, 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 to maintain our current strength while we're doing a lot of volume on other movements and hopefully building up quote unquote strength capacity, if you will, by supporting hypertrophy, right. And building some momentum and getting those, those, you know, you know qualitative skill elements in place that are going to be just is even more important when you're doing a single at nine, uh, you know, eight weeks from now or something like that. So that is how I think of it. So I might go from doing, you know, um, once a week singles at a five to seven, twice a week singles at a six to eight, three times per week singles at a seven to nine, and then maybe even more uh, at a single at an eight to 10. And typically that's higher frequency on bench and then moderate frequency on squat and lower frequency on deadlift. But again, it's going to be individual, but that's kind of like where I start. And then I adjust from based upon my experiences. And as we start getting into these heavier and heavier singles that require more buildup sets, more mental arousal, um, arguably higher injury risk is we're dropping volume on other things. So that is kind of how that big picture uh, looks like 
and just making sure that we're also doing things like deloads and checking in with the athlete and, uh, you know, seeing that the performance trend is doing what I'm expecting it to do. Like in those first couple blocks, it's relatively flat. Like, hell, if we can do a crap ton of bodybuilding work and your one RMs are staying stable, that's a good thing in my mind. That's kind of my paradigm of thought, right? Because normally when you go through like a pure bodybuilding phase and you come back to a lift, you've lost some strength on it because you haven't been practicing the competition lift. Like if you were just doing, you know, hack squats, leg extensions and lunges, and then for eight weeks, and then you came back into the squat, you don't typically see a new one or I'm on the squat in a trained lifter. You might in a not very well-trained lifter. Um, but if we can be doing that and then maintaining strength or estimated one RM on this one single week at a five RPE, I see that as a big win because it makes that transference supposedly, you know, if we're thinking about periodization theory, uh, which I think has some limited truths to it, uh, then, then hopefully it makes those, uh, those conversions from block to block to block more, uh, more smooth. And we're actually getting more carryover. Awesome. Yeah. I think that's, um, all really, really good data. I think you know, I thought it was really interesting and a really good sign of like, you know, I guess how attentive of a coach that you are, that you actually have, you know, you know, that your athletes respond better to different things. Um, like for example, um, I know that for myself, because this is something that I have experimented with a little bit of doing like more, more frequent singles, mainly on deadlift. Um, uh, just because like squats, just, I'm not built well for them. And, uh, you know, I just don't really get them much out of singles. Um, you know, I kind of found I didn't really make as good, as good progress to this block where I've been doing basically the most kind of most moderate intensity zones. Um, and then I find that I'm one of those, those lifters that kind of does respond well to more of that classic linear periodization with most of my intensity within that moderate, um, loading zone. Um, so I guess that my question for you would be, say, if you were trying to figure out using basically that single as a heuristic, maybe you're trying to figure out in sort of that Mike Tashir-esque fashion, signal to noise ratio of using essentially maybe that single at eight to benchmark how much is a certain loading zone, say, you know, in the RTS framework, maybe being sort of an exploratory block, say, you know, we're not doing, you know, we're not in, in a meet. Um, maybe you have like one block where you do like a single at eight, and then you have more of that low intensity work, see how that drives up progress, maybe we're the moderate and then high intensity. Do you think that would be like maybe a valid way of just of deducting signal to noise of what we're actually trying to figure out? Um, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the interesting thing is that the singles not only are diagnosing whether or not you're improving, maintaining or losing strength, they're also potentially driving it. So I do think it's important to have a block where you're doing mostly non-specific work, except for the singles to kind of have your, your baseline assessment of how this works for you. Um, because sometimes you will be startled to find that I started doing singles at a five to seven RPE and then mostly bodybuilding work. And I got stronger. And previously I was doing like five by five on two days, you know? So immediately you're, you're, you're told something that, I mean, it might not be better, but it might tell you that, you know, the amount of work that I think I need to do to make progress on these lifts is actually a lot less. And that's useful information. doesn't mean you're necessarily going to jump ship. Maybe the progress curve is, is slower on, on just doing singles at a five to seven RPE once or twice a week, you know, once on deadlift, once on squat, twice on bench. But you're like, holy shit, I was doing, you know, 10 to 20 sets and now I'm doing one to two, you know, but they're, they're, they're intentional. I'm sitting here, I'm doing a single, they're, they're in comp fashion. Um, and I have definitely seen that, which is kind of mind blowing. Um, and that, that's a, a useful baseline kind of thing to check in on. 
uh, I think then from there, then you start dipping your toe into other different approaches to see like, okay, what is going to make up the, the meat of my training? And I do, I, I think, you know, like the narrative that I, I would go with, well, why does someone do better with, you know, sets of say three to six in moderate loading zone ranges? Um, and it may be that, you know, a single at not of heavy enough RPE or even a reasonably heavy RPE uh, isn't just not enough for you to correct the errors that you're making. So like, for example, if you get out of position, you grind through a nine RPE squat and you always get a little out of position on any kind of really, really high RPE squat, deadlift or bench, not everyone, but most people to some degree, even if it's not super visible, it doesn't give you a huge opportunity to then do anything about it afterwards. So the back off work can be important, but the back off work won't necessarily produce that same problem until later in the set or it won't produce it at all. If it's like a triple at 80%, you know, that's like, again, another five RPE. So you may need something like a triple at an eight or a triple at a seven for you for that first rep to be you know pretty good. But then you have two opportunities of reps where you have to consciously fight against the things your body is doing because of fatigue or the inability to produce the amount of force to keep the bar speed moving. And I think that gives you more motor learning opportunities because you've varied the biological system. Now you're attempting the same task, but in a state of a little more fatigue. So for example, you know, you say, I'm not built to squat. It's really challenging for me. You probably need to get pushed out of position than more than just that single rep where you're trying to focus on it to actually get better at learning that, that skill to squat. And I think that is, uh, that, that, that might be the narrative that, that we would go with. And then we could, we could go, okay, if that is the cause, then we would, you know, try to leverage that, but let's do a, you know, fours at a four and four and five reps at a seven to eight RPE, this block with those same singles and see how it goes. And does it improve things? Um, of course it could just be the volume itself, but anyway, I think the, that I gave that very specific example, because it's one example of how my thought process would be. And it is basically what you said, we would test out a specific lift in a specific intensity zone with a certain amount of volume, and then see if that produced a, a greater improvement in the curve of estimated one RM on those singles. And so my question with that is say that if you did find that the lifter did respond best, like overall, let's say on the squat to three to six rep range, um, would you basically have a linear periodization or maybe like further out from me, you go with sixes and then closer to threes? Yeah, that, I mean, that's, I think that's a very logical takeaway from that. Um, and because you've still got the singles, you've still got that, like you can still increase the, the frequency of the singles so long as you don't see it has a negative effect, but primarily leverage that, you know, you know, four by six, four by five, uh, four by four, three by four, three by three, two by three is your back off work as you get close into comp in that, in that example. I think that's totally something you could do. Awesome. I guess my last question on this topic was, um, do you feel like this is a, like periodizing singles has more utility for advanced people than it does beginners or have you found in your practical experience? It's like kind of everybody kind of can benefit somewhat from it. I think it depends on what we mean by beginner. If like uh, you just started lifting weights six months ago and there's a, you know, you hired a, a power lifter coach, or let's say you got a trainer in your local box who happens to also be a power lifter. You, you saw what he or she or they were doing and you're like, that looks really cool. I want to give it a try. Hey coach, can we try this? And you're getting into your first meet. Maybe not. Uh, that's so early on in your lifting career that you would probably be better just to kind of focus primarily on technique and just kind of keep a very kind of basic protocol um, that is somewhere in that quote, quote unquote, here I'm going to sound like Ripito for a second, like your basic strength, like, you know, fives are good because they do a lot of things at the same time and they're heavy enough. And honestly, compared to, to just getting up off the couch, being the heaviest squat you did previously, they're tremendously, you know, you know, stimulative and they're probably no better 
than doing singles because it's all so much more specific to the goal of powerlifting compared to where you were. It's a, a relative specificity is massive, right? Um, but I think if we're talking about like a novice powerlifter, someone who's been you know lifting weights without a competitive drive for a couple of years and then gets into powerlifting, I think absolutely the singles are great because they've probably been squatting, but you might have been doing sets of ten or whatever, widowmakers or if you're bodybuilder or whatever. Awesome. Uh, I guess then, then like, would you say that for advanced lifters, it would probably be a little bit more of like a better utility because I know like, like, I, I know that you, you've talked about this and this is something that I've kind of been talking about a lot with, with, you know, my, my clients who ask me about, you know, how do I come out with certain training approaches? Um, you know, it's like, what's work, like the, the scope of what can work for a beginner is much more broad than it is in advance. So basically if you're making any sort of progress as an advanced lifter, you're probably be pretty close to optimal. And you work with yeah. advanced lifters like Jessica and Bryce, for example, are world-class athletes. Um, and so what do you say that it's a little bit more important to like, I guess, keep a very similar structure year round for advanced athletes. If you know, what's kind of driving their progress is, is like a beginner, because I know that Bryce yes. brought a video on like TSA basically saying that he believes that like beginners and intermediates can be exposed like a variety of different training approaches, like more, more early on, especially just so you can kind of like deduce that signal to noise rather than advanced. It's kind of just like the range of what works, like your training blocks might look just way more similar than, than different as opposed to if you're a beginner or well, yeah. Ultimately with an advanced lifter, you don't always know if you're progressing. Um, because like, you know, if, if you look at some of these lifters at a high level, we'll use myself as an example, like my progress over the last few years has been 15 kilos. So how do you gauge that? And, it, and that's not just like this very, very slow linear curve of small change. There's periods where it's down a little bit, up a little bit. Like I still have the, the, the peaks and peaks and valleys that every lifter has. But for me to actually know whether I'm on an upward trend, I have to have something to gauge that, right? If I don't have some system that I'm paying attention to, to inform me, I can spin my wheels for a while and not actually know, because I'm not expecting to be able to see progress. Uh, so uh, like I need a system. If you don't have systems for advanced athletes, you can waste time. Um, if you just kind of have this qualitative, uh, you know, assessment with no quantitative elements or consistency and assessing progress, you basically shift things when the person is mentally burnt out and feels like they've been plateaued for a while. And it becomes just apparent, like, man, this whole year, I didn't make any progress. And that point you're like, all right, now I'm going to step in as a coach. And it's like, that's, you, what have you been doing this whole time? You know? So, and I think it's easy to get that way on your own, but you know, a coach, sometimes it's a little better, but if a system makes it even better more than that. But for beginners on the other hand, and even early stage novices, you don't have to do anything to diagnose whether you're making progress. Like it's, it's just apparent. If you keep going back to the gym and you're rotating through exercises, and even if you have a program where you don't do triples again on that exercise again for a month, it's probably going to go up no matter what you do. It's so long as it's reasonably a good, a good setup. <coughs> so you don't need a complex system to gauge whether or not to diagnose whether or not you're actually progressing the signal is so much stronger than the noise for early stage people that uh, the system becomes like unnecessary. You can certainly have it in there. And I do think you should probably have some singles and even novice and intermediate powerlifters. It doesn't need to be weekly necessarily, but I mean, ultimately you're getting ready for a powerlifting meet where you're going to be doing singles. So that should be in there somewhere. 
you know, yeah. um, in, in some form or, or fashion. But uh, I don't think it needs to be like uh, like the benchmark that it is for an advanced athlete where you really need a system to tell if they're even progressing at all. Awesome. Um, and I guess, uh, I guess one last quick question on the, on this topic is I know that you said that you were kind of using like more of a lower RPE, usually during more of a volume phase. Um, is your, would you say that you're, so how much in your, I guess your coaching system or you know, quote unquote, um, do you view hypertrophy as being a crucial component of like success? Cause I know that we do have some longitudinal data that basically says, you know, process sexual area correlates pretty well. And if you look at basically every single top powerlifter, like they're pretty jacked. For their weight mm. class. Um, I guess in terms of powerlifting, um, how would you maximize that muscle growth? You know, in case, you know, obviously making the assumption that a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle, while also, you know, not sacrificing that, I guess, single in, in some yeah. way in the long run. And that's exactly the, the, the rationale behind those earlier periodization phases and that kind of uh, template that I described of going through, you know, infrequent but still at least once a week singles at a five to seven and a six to eight. Um, those are there just to kind of maintain uh, that, that, that strength on those lifts while, and therefore providing you a, a non-fatigued state while still getting that uh, to dedicate a lot of time to hypertrophy work. So I, I do believe that um, in the long run, bigger muscles, which are best achieved by specific hypertrophy work, um, and when I say specific hypertrophy work, I just mean focusing on hypertrophy, not just doing kind of your standard uh, powerlifting program uh, is a probably a more efficient way to get there. And uh, you just need to account for that opportunity cost, which is what those singles do uh, without generating too much fatigue. So that's kind of the trade-off and the paradigm I work from. And I think when you look at the research, exactly what you're saying is it's all like then you call them like long-term studies, but they're cross-sectional. So like if we look at high-level powerlifters, so we we cross-sectionally analyze them. And I think where the critique comes in is that over the length of studies that we typically look at, you know, eight to 12 weeks, um, we don't see the, you know, enhanced hypertrophy, which is, you know, again, a lot of these studies, it's a very small amount of hypertrophy we're looking at. And we're thinking like a, only a proportion of that actually transfers to strength. So should we be expecting to see anything over the, over the eight to 12 week period? And I think the uh, incorrect uh, conclusion from that is, well, look, if over an eight to 12 week period, which is exactly the kind of length of, uh, you know, buildup you talked about Eric with singles for five to seven, six to eight, seven, nine, eight to 10, there won't be any addition to strength. Then why are we even doing that, 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 that hypertrophy work? Well, okay. If, if you are of the position that hypertrophy does eventually contribute to it, which may not be if you're a listener, but I would, I think it's very difficult to create a uh, a world where everything we understand about muscle and those cross-sectional relationships um, doesn't result in there being some contribution of uh, muscle size to strength, then when do you do the hypertrophy work, right? You know, if, if most powerlifters are doing two to three meets per year and you don't do it at all in the 12 weeks prior, um, so does that mean you're doing like a whole lot of bodybuilding work every like, like maybe for a total of nine weeks out of the year when you're not in the 12 week out phase? I don't think that makes a lot of sense. So I think what we're looking at is accumulating in a as efficient as possible hypertrophy over time. And it is not that I think what you did from weeks nine to 12 in this buildup helped you improve your one RMs in this meet, but more so that, you know, the fact that we do that as a regular part of our work and it is included normally, and it is slowly helping us accumulate hypertrophy and that we're still keeping some degree of that work in, in the final, say, four to six weeks of this block leading up into this meet. It's enough not to lose the size you built, 
that that will ultimately add up over time to a more efficient process of increasing muscle mass, which will hopefully therefore uh, slightly increase your rate of progress as a powerlifter over multiple years. But that's just simply, unfortunately, something that is extremely difficult to prove empirically. Um, but in my mind, I don't see much of a trade-off or loss of an opportunity cost from taking an approach where you dedicate some time to hypertrophy uh, when it makes sense to do so. Um, and there, I guess some coaches could argue that there would be if they wanted to do a high volume, high specificity approach all the time. Um, but I think we've seen that that also has an opportunity cost and also doesn't work for everybody. Uh, and there's a higher injury risk. So in my mind, uh, when I weigh all the pros and cons, when I think about all the evidence, when I think about the opportunity costs and the theoretical understanding of all of this, and what do you need to have a minimum effective dose to actually progress a power lifter being a lot lower than the uh, originally thought on average to then what do we need to peak? And then what do we need to induce hypertrophy? Something that looks somewhere in this bound of spending a fair amount of time working deliberately at hypertrophy is probably an important thing that might add up over the years. Um, and it's not to say that you don't get some hypertrophy work from doing like triples and fours and fives and all that stuff that are more commonly in there in traditional powerlifting programs. Is that less or more efficient than what I'm doing? If you really put a gun to my head, I'd say it's probably slightly less efficient or it induces more fatigue. Like I wouldn't want, like if, if, if you had to ask me from a bodybuilding perspective, okay, you can accumulate a whole bunch of sets of fives on squats or your leg day can consist of hack squats, uh, split squats and leg extensions and a few other things. And let's say we just ignored the fact that maybe I'm not getting good rectus femoris development from, uh, from squats. And we just looked at my vast thigh muscles. I'd say, yeah, it would probably produce similar hypertrophy if we equated the volume, but I'd be wrecked. And I'm more likely to start getting hip pain and, and have an injury cropped up if I was just trying to do a bunch of fives or, or sixes or fours or what have you. And um, to me, that stuff adds up over time. So I think uh, when, you're, when you're in the game of working with high level lifters and you're trying to maximize efficiency, that's why I make these decisions. Um, but I could absolutely see somebody providing some fair counterpoints, um, but they have just been insufficient to convince me from, from totally changing my narrative and paradigm thus far. Yeah. So that, that, that's all really, really, really insightful for, for, for me. I'm sure for the listeners too. Um, just, you know, I definitely have a bias um, for more beginners and intermediates because this is a lot of this is from my personal experience. Um, I've seen that if my scale weight has probably gone up or I've had some sort of higher volume phase, like a lot of the dependency upon my singles going well later on in my, you know, in my, in my block depends upon, did I actually gain some sort of body weight? Did I actually um, improve in those moderate loading zones? Um, you know, while still like, that's kind of what I view as, you know, probably, and like, I know that there's that are flaws to this, but it's, it's my, it's my bias. If I, if my singles didn't go very, very well it's probably because I wasn't eating enough and I probably wasn't, you know, accumulating enough volume in those blocks prior. Um, especially because, you know, there's some detraining that does occur towards, you know, a, a peak, um, in order for me to maintain that skill that they don't have the actual like, strength or have that potential to increase it beyond its current, uh, capacity. But I think the last thing I wanted to go over is I know we are limited on time. I want to be respect, respectful of it is, um, you, you kind of basically just went on, you know, there's different training approaches in terms of like exercise selection and whatnot that do work better for individuals, individuals progress. Something that I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, 
you know, there's like basically two sorts of periodimes I have for deadlift and for squat. And the more I've been thinking, thinking about it, so I've got for more advanced athletes, and I've kind of transitioned away from having as much direct specific deadlift work, like you know, like being more around like you know four to six sets per week that are more overloading, and then putting a lot more work onto like hypertrophy. Um, because I found that lots of times powerlifters do kind of neglect their posterior chain, like leg curls, back extensions, RDLs. And that's something that like Eric and I have been doing. Like I've been doing a lot more posterior chain work and less direct, direct specific deadlift volume. That's been going well for me. And I've seen with Andrew Lee with my lifters, that's also gone well. Likewise for squatting, it's like you have some people that are a bit like Russell Orty who can just squat and they just that just drives their progress. They just do more squat. And I have some, some athletes for just like that. And you know, we have some very minimal accessory work um and that's how they grow that's how they get their strength whereas for somebody like me it's um you know i will do the bare minimum to basically have that technical proficiency on the on the squat but what actually drives my squat progress is leg press and belt squat so what you kind of said there with you know different exercise selections and uh what whatnot too and periodizing that in concurrence with the singles is pretty important because like I used to come from the very much the Bonner Chuck school of things where like, oh, like specificity, like as you get closer to a meet and blah, 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 like you have to do things like this hashtag realization. But going off of it again, this kind of goes off the last um, podcast that we did, did together. There's lots of different ways to get stronger and there are probably four better and more efficient ways of getting stronger for each individual. And that's why having a coach or having like, if you, or if you have the ability to really pay attention to yourself and be unbiased and really pay attention to your training response, that's probably what's going to lead to the best long-term progress uh, again like every system has flaws like no system no system is perfect but um, i think just having some sort of you know i guess going all in is important on one approach so you can actually know whether or not i think that's something that i've been guilty of a lot of lifters are guilty of is not i guess trusting their their systems enough and that's why yeah, i, would agree. I, have I agree with that because i don't i don't trust myself <laughs> yeah yeah i think no matter how you do it um the only thing that I would be very compensating the right way is just making sure that you can assess whether what you're doing is working or not, and then doing something about it, you know, needing to be able to pay attention. And that is absolutely easier to do when you have someone who can uh, objectively be a little bit more objective about it than, than you, because you're kind of in the process. Um, so yeah, I honestly had nothing to add to that. That was a really great summary. Um, and uh, yeah, for exercise selection, I think it is very, very individual um, and I think the one things I would say is like, you know, there, I don't like people tend to like specificity is a thing, hundred percent, but people create their own continuum of specificity for what matters. You know, like if you're thinking I'm going to do sets of eight on squat, um, and I, I don't want to do leg press because I want it to transfer better. Um, it's already very non-specific compared to a one RM and it's not that different. And like both a leg press and a set of eight on squats are actually quite different than a one RM. They both exist further away than most people would think. Um, so I think, uh, that is where sometimes the, uh, the fallacy lies is, is there, they're arguing over negligible amounts of specificity. They might, might have a cost that they don't realize, you know, like if we're 12 weeks out from a meet, yeah, I'd rather do belt squats as my primary volume work than, than squats um, because I'm not trying to beat you up with five by eight on, on, on squats, you know, when you're 12 weeks out. That sounds like a, a recipe for maybe we don't get on the platform in some cases, not, not always. So I think that's just kind of the, uh, the general paradigm around exercise selection I think about.
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Uh, I really appreciate your, your time. Um, I could keep talking to you forever, but uh, you know, I'm, you know, I think we've had the hour. So um, I guess I'll let you uh, say where people can find you. Yeah, man. Just thanks for having me on. Great discussion. Always appreciate your questions. They're very well thought through. I hope it was beneficial to the listeners. If you're interested in hearing me yippity yap more, head over to 3dmusclejourney.com. That is the number three, the letter D. From there, you can find links to mass like you talked about. Uh, you can find links to my books where I talk about training and nutrition theory. Uh, and if you don't want to pay me money, which is totally fine because Money is important and, you know, you may, might want to have some of it and not just give it all to me. You can also just listen to our podcast at 3D Muscle Journey, where we go through topics related to competitive bodybuilding and powerlifting and just life for those folks. Uh, we also have our, our, our blogs. And like you mentioned earlier, you can always find me with Omar Yusuf uh, chopping it up on Iron Culture. And if you want to find me linking out to this stuff and not doing much else, I'm just kidding. There is some native content on Instagram as well. You can follow me at Helms3DMJ on Instagram. Awesome. Well, go and do all those things. You guys are missing out if you're not following him. I'm listening to more things. There's lots of things we could have went over, like I said, again. But I think we went into a lot of a deep, deep dive into two pretty big topics in this space. So I appreciate you so much for, for your time. And I will talk to you guys in the, the next one. Adios.